Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later, she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earn the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Leslie Ireland, former Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Intelligence and Analysis. She joined Treasury in 2010 after 25 years at CIA, where she specialized in Iran, the Middle East, and weapons of mass destruction. Her exciting career also included stints at the Intelligence Community's Mission Manager for Iran and as a PDB briefer for President Barack Obama. Leslie retired in November 2016 after more than 31 years in the intelligence community and currently serves on the board for Citigroup. Leslie, we are excited to have you. Thanks for joining us on Iron Butterfly. Well, thank you, Megan. And it's a real thrill to be here. And I've listened to your podcast and I've seen the other women that you've spoken to and I'm very honored to be in their company. Well, we are honored to have you. So, you know, to kick us off, um, we would love for you to tell us a little bit about how you became interested in the intelligence community. Was it something you always knew you wanted to do? And how did you end up at CIA? So I think I can trace my interest in intelligence unknowingly back to the 20th of July, 1969. And for those of you who were like me alive then, uh, you'll know what I'm talking about. I didn't at the time. I knew it was an unusual day, evening, in fact. I was sitting at home with uh, my family. Uh, we were up late. Uh, we were in our pajamas and we're watching TV. We're all clustered around our black and white TV. And what we're watching is Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walk on the moon, first men on the moon. And I remember my father uh, was sitting beside me and he had this intensity about him that I had never seen before. And I didn't fully understand at the time and later learned that he had led the team that developed the software for the lunar module. Oh, wow. So I can truly say my father um, put men on the moon. And for all the engineers out there, you understand his intensity. It's called proof of concept. <laughs> and it's, it's going to be proved one way or the other. They're live for everybody to see. But he didn't talk about it because we were in a race with the Soviet Union to get to space. And he didn't talk about it because he didn't want to be a target. The company didn't want him to be a target uh, for the Soviet Union. And that, I think, was my first real awareness that we had this adversary, that we had another uh, entity out there, a force out there that we had to um, that we had to reckon with. And over time, I just became increasingly interested in the Soviet Union and the people and the language. And I was able to study Russian language starting in the ninth grade, which I think is fairly unusual. Wow, um, yeah. our, our school system was a little more progressive than most. And uh, I ended up going on to focus on international relations when I got into college. Now, I entered college believing that I wanted to be a lawyer. And my view of law was heavily influenced by the black and white uh, version of Perry Mason that I watched. <laughs> so for all of you listening, this is Raymond Burr. This is not Matthew Reese. 
<laughs> and, um, you know, and, and Perry was the defense attorney and, and his client was always the one that was uh, on trial, but always, always got off. And that was my view of what the law was. So I got into college and I took some what they called pre-law courses and I was bored to tears. And then I took second semester of class in international relations and I was absolutely hooked. I was fascinated by the both the nuance and the complexity of countries and how they related to each other and how they took upon their own self-interests and really what it meant as you were trying to navigate having a relationship and the world. And I uh, finished up with my college degree, had no idea what I wanted to do. So I did the next logical thing and I kept going to school. And I ended up at Georgetown in a master's program in Russian studies. And there continued to focus on not only just the language, but history and politics and economics and literature and uh, everything about the Soviet Union. So at this point now, it's uh, the early 1980s. We're still in the Cold War and uh, not a lot of business opportunities with Russia, um, but certainly a lot of opportunities either in academia or in the government. And from that perspective, CIA seemed to be a natural place for me to land. And analysis, and I don't think I realized it at the time, but later learned analysis, not collection. Analysis really was my sweet spot. Did you apply to the CIA or were you recruited? And what was that kind of process like for you? Either way. A little bit painful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I I did apply, kind of a long story. It's uh, I did apply for initially, they they had a graduate program uh, where you could be an intern in between your two years of graduate school. And I think they might still do that. And for people listening, I think that's a great opportunity if you want to get a sense of, is this something you think you would like to do? Kind of that trial run is a great opportunity um, during the summer. Um, they uh, ended up turning me down for the intern program, but they sent me a letter saying, if you're interested in full-time work, please let us know. Uh, you know, once you have your degree, I thought, great. So sent in an application um, and didn't hear anything and didn't hear anything and didn't hear anything. And um, finally heard no. And I was kind of shocked. And the next day, the very next day, I'm reading the newspaper in the want ads. And there's a big, big piece from CIA that says, we're looking for people with area studies backgrounds. And I thought, that's, that's what I've got, area studies. So I called personnel at CIA and I wanted, I was trying to understand why I didn't, you know, why they weren't interested in me. And I didn't entirely get a straight answer, but I got somebody who was willing to get me another application, said they couldn't find the one that I said I had submitted. And so I filled out the application a second time, uh, sent that in, still not hearing a lot. And uh, in the middle of this, I ended up having a conversation with a roommate's father. So um, there were four of us that lived in a house in a very nice section of Washington, D.C., and two were law students at GW. Uh, One was an undergrad at George Washington, and I was at Georgetown. Well, the two law students at GW got held up at gunpoint about three blocks blocks from the house, uh, one Saturday night in December. And uh, naturally, the um, the roommate who, who was at GW, it was her dad, uh, very concerned about this. I don't blame him. We're, we were not far from Chevy Chase, Maryland, just to give you an idea. It was a very nice section of DC. So he came over one afternoon. I stayed back from uh, the university and studied from home. And I'm watching him as he's taking steps around the house to make it more secure, you know, deadbolts and different things like that. But then he's, he's drilling holes in our window frames and sliding nails in. 
And I, and I said to him, what, what advice? What are you doing? Where did you learn how to do this? Well, I'll never forget. He's in, he's in the living room. He sits back on his heel. He's on the floor. He sits back on his heel. And he starts to tell me a story. He worked at CIA. He worked in the S&T, Science and Technology. And he was in Tehran in the late 1970s. It was before the revolution. And um, he was working with some contractors on a project. And one morning, uh, the chief of station came to him and said, you know, you all are traveling. You're just setting up this travel, you know, this uh, pattern of travel. You you go to the same place for breakfast. You take the same route to the embassy. You're, you know, you're just creating a target for yourselves. He said, tomorrow morning, I'm going to come and get you and I'm going to bring you myself. So um, the COS brought my roommate's father, not the contractors, and they get to the embassy and they're they're waiting for the two men from Rockwell. And that was the morning that the terrorists struck and attacked the car that they were riding in and the um, the two men were killed. And oh it, it could have been my roommate's father that was killed too, but it was the two men were killed. So he's, t- I mean, my jaw is, you know, practically on the floor as he's telling me the story. And then he says rather cheerfully, I think you'd enjoy working there. <laughs> so I don't know what's worse that he thought I'd enjoy working there or that I actually agreed with him. And um, he, uh, his name was Gene Potit and Gene uh, knew somebody at CIA still in HR and he called them and they sent me an application. So I submitted a third application. Oh my goodness. And, um, you know, finally it, it gets around that there's this third application floating there. And I talked to a woman from HR. I actually went in and talked to her in person. And I said, I don't want to take no for an answer based on, you know, 30 pieces of paper. I, I would like an interview. If someone wants to interview me and say no, that's fine. But I, I don't want to take no for an answer on 30, 30 pieces of paper. And to her credit, she got me a number of interviews. And obviously, I was eventually hired. But later, later when I found my personnel file, um, I saw a note that she put in there. And she said that I had been persistent and polite in pursuit of my job <laughs> with the CIA. Wow, that is some story. There it took so 18 many, months. Well, and that's a lesson for, for many people entering the right. IC, right? Is that it? that is a commonplace. It does take mm-hmm. a long time. And... Things happen. And clearly, in your case, you were overlooked and then they lost your resume and you still had to go in there and say, you want me. You should be wanting me, basically. Well, not only that, but the day they finally called me to say they wanted to move forward with processing, I had started another job. And they were shocked to find out that I had started another job. And I will say this, once they figured out that they wanted me, they moved very fast. But getting to that point was hard. Oh, goodness. Well, you know, while you were at CIA, you um, have held some really incredible positions. Um, Could you share with us a little bit about what your professional journey looked like once you were there? Sure. So I started in a program. I don't know that they do it anymore. They took a group of us from across the agency, basically offline for a year, and you trained together and you learned about the entire agency and you developed a network of people that, frankly, I reached out to up until the very day that I retired from the government. So I found it a really valuable experience. My office that I was going to paid my salary. So they were very generous in that regard. And I had been hired on to do Soviet-related research in an office that did technical analysis. So I'm a flaming liberal arts major, but they brought <laughs> me into a technical office. 
And and I, I did. I walked in the door. I mean, this is where we're talking. It's 1986 now. We're still in the Cold War. I'm still all about the Soviet Union. And I walk in and my branch chief says to me, you know, we've had this other issue that's emerged. Um, and, and it was a need to follow non-Soviet, non-Chinese related um, ballistic missile developments. And I asked him, I said, what would keep me busier? He said, well, this this other stuff, this, they called it third world. And I, and I said, yes, I would do that all the while thinking, believing in my mind, I would do this for a couple of years. And then someday I would go back and follow the Soviet Union again, because that still was um, a driving passion of mine. Well, we all know history, November of 1989, the wall falls. Mm-hmm. I've been doing these issues for three years now. Uh, Saddam has invaded Kuwait. Uh, the United States goes to war with Iraq. Uh, lots of things are happening uh, globally. And amongst those things, the Congress announces that with the Soviet Union that has collapsed, we now have a um, peace dividend. Uh, the intelligence community doesn't need all of the funding that it's had before. So budgets are cut and departments and agencies are told they need to reduce the level of effort on Russia. And that left a lot of my very, very capable peers um, left them in the position of having to recreate themselves. And I, I found myself basically having recreated myself. So I'm, I'm kind of sorry to say that I never got back and worked on Soviet mm. issues. And uh, it still has always remained an interest of mine, but I never, I never got back to do that. But I definitely developed a passion for the Middle East and eventually Iran. Uh, in fact, my mother told me one time, I said to her, uh, in the midst of the Iraq war and the UN weapons inspections and, and the international censure that Iraq found itself under, I said to her, the next country to watch is Iran. So um, that's pretty much what I did. I ended up shifting to a focus on Iran, um, and I shifted over to a regional office. At CIA, there are functional offices, there are regional offices. So I went over and functioned on a re- regional office and ended up taking a number of positions that were analytical, collection, policy, um, management. I mean, I really focused on Iran from a number of different perspectives. And finally, um, after I had pretty much gone through all of that, I landed in a job with John McLaughlin as his executive assistant. And for folks in the intelligence community, at least in my generation, John is very much a a very revered and Mm -hmm. uh, respected practitioner practitioner of the art of intelligence. And um, I had had the opportunity to prepare John to go down to DC to represent the IC at policy meetings. And I had such respect for him. I wanted to understand his management philosophy. So I asked his executive assistant, I said, does John ever do lunch? Could I do lunch with John sometime? And she said, oh, John never does lunch. And I thought I was just getting brushed off. Well, a couple of a couple of months later, John was looking for new executive assistants, and uh, he gave the head of analysis my name and the name of actually a friend of mine and asked to interview the both of us. So my friend interviewed first, and as she was done with the interview, she called me, um, and she told me about the interview and the things he'd asked, what he seemed to be interested in, because she didn't really want the job, and she knew mm-hmm. I really wanted the job. And I ended up, uh, he ended up offering me the position and I took it. And um, the thing that I learned about John is the reason why 
I respect his management and leadership style is he sees value in everybody and he knows how to bring out the best in people. That people really want to work and and do well for him. I also learned that he doesn't do lunch or he didn't do lunch. And and the <laughs> So you weren't was, being you weren't I being brushed off. <laughs> I was not being brushed off. Uh, in fact, he took me to lunch one time in the executive dining room and wanted to make sure that this was as, the experience that I was hoping it would be. I mean, that's the kind of person that he was. Oh wow. Um, and in fact, uh, the joke before John retired was that he was one of the things he looked forward into retirement was no longer eating like a domesticated animal. And what that meant was lunch usually was a bowl of soup at his desk standing up. <laughs> so, so John retired um, and it was a fairly tumultuous time for CIA and the intelligence community. We had been undergoing a number of external commissions looking at performance on counterterrorism in 9-11. So the 9-11 commission uh, on the lack of WMD in Iraq um, and so there was the Iraq WMD Commission. We also saw the creation of the DNI. So that meant that the CIA was no longer the director of central intelligence, was no longer the DCI, was just the director of CIA. And uh, I stayed on through part of that period and was an executive assistant to Porter Goss. And during that time, I was promoted to a senior intelligence service, which was a real honor, but it left me with this question mark about, okay, now what do I do? So I will tell people who are eager to get ahead, be careful what you wish for, <laughs> because the opportunity gets smaller and smaller as you get higher uh, on that pyramid. And I ended up applying for a job as the issue manager in an office where I had been the deputy. And I think I walked into it thinking, I know this job. I wouldn't say I walked in thinking this job is mine, but I walked in thinking, I know this job. I have a good shot at this. Well, I didn't get it. And I was, and I didn't get it because I didn't express a vision. So I um, was embarrassed because it, you know, in some respects it didn't look good. I was a little upset with myself because I thought, well, of course I should have done more to prepare for this. And uh, that afternoon I got a phone call asking if I wanted to interview for the Iran mission manager position with the first DNI Negroponte. And I got the call from a colleague of mine that I had met in one of the projects I had done on Iran collection. So I went down, I went down to the DNI headquarters. And I, in fact, before that, I sat down with John McLaughlin and I said, help me prepare a vision statement. Help me understand what the DNI is going to want to know about how I would approach this job. And, you know, DNI Negroponte was very easygoing and asked if I'd worked on Iran. And I said, yes, I had. And then, and, and, you know, then he said, well, when can you start? Well, I thought he meant hypothetically. Yeah. And, and I didn't say right away. And he looked perplexed. And then he said, <laughs> do you, do you want the job? I said, well, yes. So we went back talking back and forth a little bit more. And David was there and General Hayden was there. He was his principal deputy. And I'm walking out and I said to David, so David, does this mean I have the job? And he said, well, well, yeah. I said, are you interviewing anyone else? He said, uh, no, uh, we weren't going to unless you didn't want it. So I head back to CIA and I bump into Porter. He's headed down to the cafeteria to have a soda. And uh, he wants to know where I've been. And I <laughs> explained to him what, what I've been doing. And he said, well, that sounds like a good job. I think you should take it. And I said, well, that's good because I did. Oh, wow. 
What a story. Wow. So I think some of our listeners would be in, who might not know um, what the mission manager for Iran is. So what were your responsibilities in that role? Sure. So I had mentioned to you that the intelligence community had faced uh, a, a fair amount of legitimate scrutiny uh, for what we're seeing as intelligence failures. And um, part of that was on Iraq WMD and why the analysis said there was Iraq, there was WMD there, and then it wasn't found. And a commission called the Rob Silverman Commission, also known as the Iraq WMD Commission, was set up. And one of the things that they looked at, which, which I felt set them apart from some of these other external reviews, was they looked at where the community had done well on WMD analysis and where it had faced shortfalls. And it came to the conclusion that we were stu- too stovepiped and we needed someone who could take an overarching view across the problem and not just across analysis, but across collection and analysis. So that was my role was to oversee all of the collection and analysis on Iran across uh, the intelligence community. Now, let me be very clear. I didn't direct operations. I didn't direct analysis. But what I did do was represent the intelligence community at policy meetings and established priorities for collection and analysis that I felt were reflective of where policy wanted um, to go. And so I represented the IC at the deputies meetings. And for for listeners, the the way policy is made in Washington is, you know, the the policy initiatives work their way up through uh, different agencies and there are different levels of working groups. They finally get to deputies, which are the deputies at agencies or departments, and then it goes to principals. So the the secretary of state, secretary of defense, et cetera. And then it will finally go to the uh, president, or at least that's the way it worked when I was there. I know every administration does things differently, but that's the way it worked when I was there. So I represented the IC at the deputies meetings. And I will tell you, I felt like I had some, some hurdles I had to overcome. I think first was skepticism within the IC. I hadn't been in the job for a month. And I, I was on the phone with one of, one of my stakeholders from one of the, the big three-letter agencies. And I was explaining to them what I, you know, my, my vision and plans for the role. And uh, they said, well, uh, we've seen this try before and we're waiting to see how long it will fail this time. So it felt wow. a little bit like a gut punch. Right. But it was good for me. I needed that frankness. And it also uh, stiffened my spine to say, no, not on my watch. I think, too, there was some skepticism on the policymaker side. So, you know, remember, these are people who often have been in other positions that have exposed them to foreign leaders or foreign counterparts, and they can develop a view about a country or its leadership based on their own experiences. Well, they don't have that on Iran. So they have to depend solely, well, what they think, but what they're reading and receiving from the intelligence community. And they're reading and receiving it in an environment where they feel like we haven't been at our best before. So I really felt a real obligation to make sure we provided the best, the most timely, and the most accurate intelligence that we possibly could. Um, It was also my first experience briefing the president, and I briefed um, President Bush. It was, uh, first time was on a very, very cold, like in the 20s, February morning. And we were going to be coming on board after he got his PDB. 
And he was getting that in the situation room. Well, what I didn't realize about the White House, the vagaries of their entry system was they won't let you in until an hour before your appointed time. So I wasn't on their list. And I'm trying to get in there early to sit down with General Hayden, who's going to be leading the group of us. Anyway, I get over, we get over to the White House finally. My, my, I'm warm, my coat's warm, but my, my, my feet are like little blocks of ice. So we walk <laughs> in and there's President Bush and members, other members of his cabinet. And, um, we are all filing in and they're chit-chatting. He looks over at us and he greets us and says, good morning. And he says, who wants coffee? And there's silence. And I said, I do. I'm thinking I'm freezing. And he looks at me, he says, I'll get it. So he, no way. <laughs> he, pour, he pours me coffee, wants to know what I take in it. And I think I said something like something to make it white, which everybody found amusing. I don't know why. And in the middle, it was a three hour session with him. And in the middle of a three-hour session, he goes up to get coffee and he looks at me. He said, do you want more coffee? I said, please. He said, I'll get it. So we're, we're heading out of there. And one of my colleagues said to me, that was really bold. And I said, well, two things. One, I was cold. You know, I needed that cup of coffee. Number two, he was being gracious. And he can't be gracious until you accept his hospitality. So in some respects, I felt like I was doing something, not just for me, but for him. I love that story. Wow. So that that's a good pivot, actually, because correct me if I'm wrong, but the next job after your mis- mission manager uh, position was as a PDB briefer for uh, President Obama. Um, so you know, the, the president's daily brief is the pinnacle of all intelligence analysis products um, that the IC creates. Can you tell us what that amazing experience was like for you? And, and you know, tell me how, you know, you got there, how, how sure. that came about. Well, I would say that it, being a POTUS briefer is binary. You either really want to do it or you really don't. I, I mean, I, I had an, any number of people who said, oh, that's amazing. What an awesome thing to do. And I had any number of people say, are you, are you crazy? Um, but for me, it was, it, I was in the first camp. I had been, uh, worked for many years, both writing articles for the PDB. I had led other analysts and taught them how to write for the president. I had sat in on policy meetings. So I understood the policymaking piece of it, or so I thought. And I really wanted to see the pointy end of the spear. And there's no place else where that happens except in the Oval Office. And I was coming to the end of three years, three pretty exhausting years as the Iran mission manager. Um, It was exhausting in part because it was a brand new concept. I had to build an office, uh, you know, developed a lot of processes, what have you. Had a wonderful time, had an amazing interagency team, but I was looking for something different. And um, I knew that they were looking for uh, POTUS briefers. And the way it, it had evolved under George W. Bush was they had two briefers. You had one one on, one off, and you pretty much did a week at a time unless you were traveling with him, in which case your stint might go to 10 days or so, uh, especially if he was overseas. And I went to then DNI Mike McConnell and said, I want to do this. And so the, the responsibilities for the PDB had moved from CIA over to the DNI. So I knew Mike McConnell was the place to go. Well, Mike didn't want me to go. And I, I get it. He's coming to the end of the Bush administration. Iran is a big focus. He doesn't want his point person on Iran to be moving off of it. Right. And he, he kind of brushed me off a little bit. And I received a somewhat dismissive email from one of his deputies. Well, then a friend at CIA, in fact, the same friend who 
interviewed with John McLaughlin with me, uh, called me to say Michael Morrell has been asked for another name. And Michael Morrell was the head of analysis at that point. So I called Michael and I said, I would really like to do this. And to Michael's credit, he was looking for a woman. He'd already selected um, a man uh, as one briefer, and he was looking to have a woman to be the second briefer. So that when Michael sent the name over for CIA's nominee, it was me. And I sat down with Mike McConnell. He said, so you really want to do this? I said, <laughs> yeah, I really want to do this. I didn't end up leaving the mission manager job until a little less than a week before the election and basically got a phone call and said, okay, you can go. I mean, I'm not making this up. It was basically a phone call. Okay, you can go. And I had a couple of other things I had to do for the next day and a half. I put some of my personal belongings in a paper bag and I drove up the road from Liberty Crossing to CIA headquarters and, and walked in right into a, a meeting that was underway about preparing the briefing. So the, the day after the election, and what you have to do in that instance is you've got two candidates, you can't presuppose who's going to win. So you have to be prepared to brief either one. And they had already booked my uh, partner on a fl flights into Chicago. And there was a debate when I got to the table saying, well, you know, Leslie hasn't had time to read in. My partner had been on this for a month now, and they thought maybe my time would be better spent reading in and getting up to speed on global issues. Uh, and I said, well, my thought is if John McCain wins and finds out that we only sent a briefer to Chicago and not to Phoenix, you can write off the relationship with him for the next four to eight years. I said, I have already voted absentee. I am ready to go. Send me to Phoenix, which is what they did. And both of us had tickets to the other city. So the morning after the election, I got up, went to the airport um, flew to Chicago. We didn't brief President-elect Obama the first day. We briefed him um, the second day. I think he was probably resting up <laughs> after <laughs> the election um, and got in there and briefed him the second day. And I would say the value I saw in having that time during the transition was that when the president gets into the White House, he does get into a bubble. And I've read about this. And you can you see it happening because there aren't as many people around him during the transition. And it was, uh, I found it a time to really understand his preferences, his interests, mm. um, and to, I think, to better serve him during the time that I was the, the briefer and to bring some things into him that I knew that he was very interested in, or at least had been very interested in during the transition. And I did that for about almost a year and a half. And I would say it was at times one of the most exhilarating and one of the most stressful times because um, exhilarating because it's just fascinating to see what you're seeing. Um, stressful because you, you can't make mistakes. If you do, you've got to correct them quickly. You have to have an answer of, I don't know, but I will find out for you. Mm -hmm. um, because this is not a place that you need to be winging it or making it up on the fly. And I will say that the between the job as Iran mission manager, where I spent a lot of time working obviously on Iran, but working with Treasury on Iran sanctions, and then the job as the POTUS briefer, where I uh, got to know the people at the White House is really what helped me get that final position at the Treasury Department as the Assistant Secretary for Intelligence. Well, that's a great segue. Um, so your career uh, in the IC culminated as the Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Intelligence and Analysis. And I know um, 
we have many women in AWIC interested in the work that OIA does. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that office and role they play in the greater IC? So OIA is pretty young. It's one of the younger intelligence elements in the IC and was created specifically to help the Treasury Department advance the unique authorities that they have to restrict access to the U.S. financial sector by entities, individuals, organizations, what have you, that um, pose a threat to U.S. national security. Because the financial sector, the U.S. financial sector is so integral to global finance, it's very painful when someone cannot use the U.S. financial sector to move money, to clear funds, to make purchases, to trade in dollars, what have you. And and what, what Treasury policymakers needed was a very unique set of analytics on what organizations were doing, how they were moving money, some very specific information they needed. Because when, when sanctions are imposed, there's a process called designations. And the designation is a very legal process. In fact, it is vetted by lawyers at the Treasury Department, at the Justice Department, because a sanctioned person or entity can sue the Secretary of the Treasury or the Director of the Office of Foreign Assets Control if they believe that they have been sanctioned erroneously. I'm happy to say uh, they've never been successful. So the case that is built is very strong. And it's a very unique kind of analysis. And it's not the kind of analysis that either I think most agencies would want to do, nor do I think that the Secretary of Defense would want to trust another agency's analysts to do that analysis Mm -hmm. uh, for them. So it really is following money flows and understanding that money can tell you a lot about behavior and intentions and um, activities of organizations. So a big part of what they, they do is, is focusing on that kind of analysis. But they also do specific economic analysis for um, uh, other par- parts of the Treasury Department. They do work on cybersecurity and the financial sector. When you look at cybersecurity and critical infrastructure, different parts of critical infrastructure have sector-specific agencies, and the Treasury Department is the sector-specific agency for the financial sector. So when I was there, we set up a group along with uh, the policy people that specifically focused on both understanding the intelligence that that had bearing on cyber attacks on the financial sector, but understanding ways that that could be conveyed to the policy community. Um, We had a 24-7 operations center. We had a counterintelligence Mm -hmm. team, and uh, we were also responsible for the security of the classified IT systems at the Treasury Department, both at the TSSEI and at the secret level. So uh, really an intelligence entity unto itself. It's more than just analysis. There are a lot of very interesting things that, um, that, that they do down there. And we also had the benefit of being able to send people on rotation. I was a big believer in the joint duty program and giving people opportunities in other agencies, but also welcoming people into the Treasury Department. Thank you for sharing that, because I think there are a lot of uh, little pockets of the IC that people really don't know about. Mm-hmm. And uh, that. I mean, there's some of that that I didn't know. And that sounds like a really exciting place to be. You know, as you were sharing your story about your career, I heard a lot of examples of you, you know, 
creating opportunities for yourself and being a champion for what you wanted, right? Um, and what was your approach to maneuvering this bureaucracy as you move through your career? So I think the first thing I'd say is I learned a lesson early on. I, uh, my first time branch chief, uh, loved nothing better than to antagonize <laughs> another office. So, you know, in intelligence, uh, you may follow an account, but you have counterparts in other parts of both your home organization, but also across the intelligence community. And you have to collaborate. You have to have good working relationships. You have right. to coordinate. Um, and let me tell you how far back I go. When we would coordinate, we would walk the piece around hard copy. There was none of this shooting it by email. We'd walk it around hard copy. And you got to meet, you meet your counterparts and work with them. Well, he loved nothing better than to antagonize this other office. And he would, he would put language in, he'd get the analyst to put language into the drafts that he knew would, would irritate. Uh, and, and he thought this was funny. Um, the head of the office said he thought that my branch chief was a mental lightweight, which he was not. Let me just say that very clearly. He was not. But, th- but there, was, there was that rivalry. Right. Well, he, he ended up taking a new job. And about two weeks after he announced that he was taking the new job, he found out that the director of that office who had called him a mental lightweight, was taken over the office that he was going to. And I I remember seeing him blanch. And I thought, aha, you know, you have to be really careful. You have to be really careful how you uh, interact with people because you will meet up with people later on in your career. It may not be for a long time, but you'll meet up with people later on. So so a big part of it is um, understanding when and where Maybe you just need to swallow it and, and, and not be uh, provocative. But also there are times when you've got to stand up for yourself. And I think very definitely being very vocal, first knowing yourself, mm-hmm. knowing what you really want to do, um, being willing to take uh, risks and changes, you know, moving from the office that I was in, doing the technical analysis, it was really presented to me in a wonderful way that I took on board as a, as a manager, as a leader. My office management came to me and said, they're standing up this new group on Iran. We think you're the best candidate you've got. So this is at a time when Congress is telling them to narrow down what they're doing on the Soviet Union. And, you know, you can go with our blessing if you get up there and you like it, great. If you don't like it, you can come back, no questions asked. You're on the short list for management here, which would have meant a promotion to a GS-15. You're on the short list for management. If you want to stay and take your chances, we'd love that too. I mean, it was a win-win. It was a win-win situation. And I, and I jumped. And, and I jumped because they gave me that freedom um, mm-hmm. to jump. I, I ultimately was asked to go downtown to, to Office of the Secretary of Defense to do a policy rotation. And I did not want to go. It was the best thing I ever did. It was, it opened my eyes to how intelligence is used by policymakers. I would pat myself on the back that I had this big name policymakers on my distribution list for my paper. They never read it. They didn't read it. Someone at the working level reads it. And then if it's important enough, they tell their boss about it, but the boss is not reading it. And you have to learn that and work that relationship at the working level to get your analysis in there and noticed. Um, So I think part of it is just being willing to accept change, putting your hand up, letting people know what you want to do. Um, and then being and then perseverant say, and polite, polite. Right? Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but, but I think also having a degree of self-awareness, 
And I don't know that I always had that when I first started, but I think I developed that over time and self-awareness about what are the things that I could do that would rub people the wrong way? Or what are the things that I could do that really would set me apart in a good way? And how did, how do I um, how do I capitalize those? One of the things I loved about this, your story is that you had a couple of challenging times in your career where you were not successful. And one of the examples mm-hmm. you gave was that you applied for this job and you didn't get it. And it was partly because you didn't provide them with a mission, like a right. clear mission or vision of what, you know, you were going to do. So, um, you know, what role do you think these failures had in your long-term success? Like, what did you learn from from those failures? Uh, That is a really great question because I think it gets back to a little bit of the having some self-awareness. I could have received that feedback and said, what do you mean? Of course I, of course I expressed the vision. Didn't you hear it? But the more I thought about it, the more I thought they're absolutely right. And, and also understood why put myself in their shoes and understood why when you step into that, you know, there's a difference between being the deputy and being the boss. And when you're the boss, your boss is depending upon you to take on that vision, that initiative, that drive. Mm-hmm. You, you can't. And I think when you get to, from a deputy to the boss, there's that, that jump you have to make. And some people can make it and some people can't. And I think what I, had t- what I was telling them was I haven't made that jump yet. And I think maybe mentally I hadn't made that jump yet, but getting that feedback helped me to see I got to do this differently. So indeed, when I was the mission manager and I did establish that vision, when I went down to the treasury department, I did have a vision. I had I had three things that I wanted to do when I walked in there. I had knew there were three things that I wanted to do and I, I articulated them. And one of the things that I said to my leadership team, I said, you will find that I pick my battles. It doesn't mean I'm confrontational, but it means there are going to be some things that I'm really going to stake some territory on. And that's going to be really good if the battle I've picked is yours. And you're going to be frustrated if I haven't picked your battle. So just understand that going (laughs) forward, because I I had learned in one of my jobs that I tried to do too much at once. I exasperated the people that were working for me because I had all these things I wanted to do and I just rolled them all out at once and it was too much. So I Mm -hmm. learned you have to take your time. And sometimes there are things that have to get pushed, you know, just um, circumstances say you have to accelerate them or do them simultaneously. But other times, if you can, you take it easy and you, and you build. And the other thing I would say I learned from all of that was to surround yourself with a leadership team um, that you trust and have confidence in and give them an opportunity to run with it. And don't, don't micromanage. I chafe at being micromanaged. And I, and I tried not to do that. There were, there were definitely times when I put my thumbprint on something, but only if I felt I absolutely had to. So, you know, another thing that I picked up from your story is that um, you really value building personal and professional relationships. And I think that kind of brought you to where you you were um, as well. So what advice would you give to women and men, for that matter, on the value of relationships as they advance through their careers? So they are, you know, as you said, they're, uh, they're vital because you can't, you can't do everything yourself. Uh, and you don't want to be seen as a person who thinks that they can do everything themselves. 
I think you can look for opportunities to build relationships. It needs to be within your agency. It needs to be outside your agency. You need to find opportunities where you can get exposed to what a different organization does and, and different perspectives. So maybe that's a joint duty opportunity. Maybe that's serving on some kind of an interagency task force. But I found when I was at the Treasury Department that I knew, I knew a lot of people at CIA and NSA and NGA and the FBI and the DIA that I could, I could make phone calls and people would take my phone calls and things would get done. So the relationship building is not only a matter of broadening yourself and your perspectives on the interagency, but having those contacts and having that ability to get your job done. I'm a big believer in the joint concept. And, you know, one of the things that I did in my career, I ended up at the Navy War College for a three-week course that they gave to uh, reservists. And it was a nine-month course they gave to active duty, and they compressed it into three weeks for the reservists. And it was on joint operations. And... Uh, the students had to prepare a solution to a problem before we got there. And they didn't expect, there were two of us from the CIA who went, just two civilians. And they didn't expect us to, to write up a, it wasn't part of the requirement for us. For the reservists, they had to do the solution. And it wasn't, it wasn't the requirement for us. But um, one of the admirals came to me and he handed me back my paper and he said, yours was the best solution in the class. And I was really stunned because I had no military experience, but I think it was because I had a joint solution. Hmm. I didn't have a solution that was just the Navy. And these guys were just going to want to rely upon the Navy. We're just going to, and, and I shouldn't say it was just Navy. They were just going to rely upon their service, their services. Um, and that just isn't the way to go. And it isn't the way to go in the intelligence community. So I think building those relationships helps you provide a joint, more comprehensive solution to the issues that we face. I love that answer. So we've come to the end. And as you know, um, know. we end each episode with the same question. And in keeping with the name of this podcast, uh, Iron Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? Uh, So as I told you at the beginning, uh, before we started recording, this, this is the one part of the interview that I was not looking forward to because I hope that people, because I noticed on your podcast that you list the name as the title mm-hmm. of the podcast. So, so I hope people will listen to the podcast and not just look <laughs> at the name. Okay. Yes. So uh, I'll tell you the name and then I'll explain why. Uh, my nickname would be Wonder Woman. Oh, I love it. I love well, it. Okay. So shortly after I retired, my husband and I took my two godsons to see the Wonder Woman movie. And as we're walking out, I turned to my husband and I said, I finally figured out why I like superhero movies so much. He says, why is that? I said, because for 31 years, I got up and I went to work every day. And I sat at my desk believing that what I was doing was helping America defeat bad guys. And in a superhero movie, the bad guy always gets his butt kicked. And it's very satisfying. And I don't know... (laughs) I don't know if I finally had that epiphany because I was watching a female superhero. Right. But it was something that helped me understand that that sense of mission is really part of my core. And as I was looking for what to do in retirement, I realized that 
that sense of mission had to be part of it. And I'll explain this too. My service on the Citigroup Board of Directors, for me, fulfills that part of mission. And I explained this to them. When they wanted to know why coming out of government did I want to serve on a corporate board, mm-hmm. I explained this. In fact, I think I might have told a few of them the Wonder Woman story. But the financial sector, the health and resiliency of the financial sector is a part of national security. Most of us think of our bank as where we have a checking account or a savings account, or maybe where we get an auto loan or a mortgage. But the financial sector is really part of the entire way that our economy works. There's four and a half trillion dollars that moves through a handful of major banks in New York City on a daily basis. Four and a half trillion dollars. That's about a quarter of our GDP on a daily basis. And it's because they're doing things like they're processing payroll. They're settling the trades on Wall Street. They're settling the sale of U.S. debt. They're involved in mergers and acquisitions. They're funding projects. You know, Citigroup, for example, funded the lighting project in Detroit uh, when they were in bankruptcy. They're doing very major things. And if you don't have that ability, if you don't have that underpinning of the economy that functions because of the financial sector, I don't know what kind of national security you have. So serving on the Citigroup board, I bring insights on cybersecurity. I bring insights on money laundering and sanctions, and I bring insights on global risk. And so I feel like in that way, it's not the same. It's not the energy rush I would get when I drive through the CIA gates in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still being part of the fight. And it means a lot to me. Well, Leslie, you truly are a Wonder Woman. And I think anyone listening to this episode would say the same. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your service. Um, thank you for your story and your insights. Um, we, I just had a, a ball today. So thank you so much. Thank you. So, so did I. This really was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, telling the Wonder Woman story wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. Oh, well, I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> this has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the Amazing Women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Beating Falcon, Resolute Unicorn, and Wise Rysteria for making this amazing series possible. We'd also like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time. Next time.